Good morning. And it's still good to be back together, isn't it? Yes. Yes, yes it is. So um, as we get into class today, let's uh, let's go ahead and open with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are looking around the world today and we are seeing uh, the world in turmoil and the nation in turmoil and we are seeing uh, movements that uh, that are certainly making us think about the second coming. And we, we ask that your Holy Spirit will be poured out here in this nation and around the world, preparing hearts and minds, and, and give us discernment and wisdom to see where you're leading and where the enemy is leading so that we can uh, consistently be on your side and represent you faithfully. Give us wisdom as we study today. Pray in your holy name. Amen. Just a couple of announcements. Be sure and check the announcements on our website and in our notes. But uh, we do have a uh, language section on our website for those who are uh, maybe not uh, English speakers. And we now have the Heavenly Sanctuary Investigative Judgment of the Modern World um, uh, available in Afrikaans uh, on our website for those who'd like to access that. Uh, I got this email this week, and I wanted to share it with you. Dear Dr. Jennings, I would like to share a recent experience with you with you with regard to your Power of Love study series. Um, and I want to remind people of our Power of Love study series. It's uh, it's available. Um, it's something can be used online. That's what this email goes into. A group from our church started the series eight weeks ago. Once we were no longer able to meet in person, we continued with Zoom. Let me first say that that with the exception of myself and a couple hosting the study series, the rest of the group are mostly unfamiliar with your ministry. Last week, we studied the seven levels of moral decision-making. I have wondered with each passing week what the class reaction might be, as this is a very conservative group. We began to go through the seven levels. When we reached number four, one of the gentlemen from the group began to cry. He said, that's been me for 40 years, and I don't want to live like that anymore. It was such a powerful moment, Dr. Jennings. I have read all your books, listened to your podcast, watched your uh, Sabbath school class, but never was I so grateful to know of your beautiful message as I was in that moment because just a few years ago, that was me as well. I will continue to pray for your ministry, especially that somehow you are able to reach our youth. I remember you once said that as a child you remembered as a children's story about how the angels would follow you around and write down all the bad things you did. That was my life as well. I believe that picture is one that our church continues to impress upon our youth. No wonder they leave the church. I wouldn't want a God. I wouldn't want that God in my life either. Amen. So I, I just thought you'd like to know it's having some impact and remind people that this resource is available. Uh, first paragraph in our lesson this week is lesson 13 uh, in how to inter- interpret scripture, living by the word of God. And the first paragraph says the best method of studying the Bible is of no use if we are not determined to live by what we learn from scripture. What is true for education in general also is true for studying the Bible in particular. You learn best not just by reading or hearing, but by practicing what you know. This obedience opens a full treasure house of divine blessings and otherwise would that otherwise would be closed to us, and it leads us on an exciting and life-transforming way to increase our understanding and knowledge. And I think this is a very, very good point. And it's describing which law? The law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. So if we want to get stronger in God's truth, his methods, his principles, we must not only study the concepts, but we must practice the methods and put them into practice in our lives and how we live. It's like the difference between studying the mechanics of swimming and actually getting in the water and swimming. They're not the same. 
So if we really want to understand, I think we understand a lot more about swimming, doing it, than we do just studying about it. And so that, that's part of the process of making it real in our lives. But this is also true because, this is true because of the law of exertion. And that law, though, brings a danger to apply this. Does the law of exertion work only on godly practices? No, it's the law of how reality works. So if we embrace ungodly methods and practice those methods, we become stronger in evil. Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. This would be what the Pharisees did in Christ's day. They were students of the Bible, devoted to long hours of Bible study, becoming experts on the Scripture, yet they accepted the wrong interpretations, wrong meanings, wrong methods, wrong principles, the lie that God's law functions like human law, and they became hardened against God. Didn't transform them in a good way. Think about Saul of Tarsus. What methods did he practice prior to Damascus Road? And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew this Bible front and back. He studied diligently. But how did he put it into practice? Through rules, through imperialism. And he was a persecutor of Christ. What happened that changed Paul's methods? He met Jesus. Yes, he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he came to understand that God's methods are not like human methods. Now, when Paul was converted at Damascus Road, did that mean he was instantly transformed and all of his practices and methods were godly methods from that point? Or did he have a process to he had to go through? Yes. Christ came across other Pharisees as well without the same response. What do you think the difference was? Yes, what do you think the difference was? Look at the time uh, when he was being arrested and he uh, had a flash of... Of, uh, of divinity, the, 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 the soldiers fell down briefly, uh, uh, Peter sees his opportunity, whips out a sword, cuts off an ear, because he was aiming for the ear. <laughs> Jesus has put away the sword, he then takes it, picks up the ear, miraculously puts it back on and restores him. They all saw it, they saw the divinity, they saw the, the, the miracle, and what did they do? They still arrested him and took him away. Why? What truth even what? without the show of power, Christ's methods with some Pharisees were not as effective as they were with Paul in the Damascus River. And, and that's because Paul was an honest seeker of truth. And they weren't. His heart, he wanted to really do God's will, but he was corrupted by a system, and he was open to be led in a new way. So my point is, though, with the law of exertion, when Paul accepted Christ as converted, did it, was there a process he still had to go through? It says he went out in the desert for three years and, and, and reprocessed everything. Even for Paul, it wasn't, I'm converted, now I got all the right methods. It took three years of, of reprocessing everything he was learned. Yes? kind of reminds me of the uh, verse where I would rather have you hot or cold or I will spew you out of my mouth. Paul was very passionate and dedicated to what he truly believed. So God said, I can use someone who's that driven by what they truly believe, I can just get them to believe the right things. Yeah, there you go. That's, that, that's why, you know, I think God reached out to him, not just to stop him from all the chaos he was causing, but he knew that if he could get him believing the right thing, that he would be just as passionate about what was right as he was passionate about what was wrong. So the paragraph talks about obedience that is life transforming. It's absolutely true. Obedience to God's methods, his principles, his design laws, 
obedience to God is life-transforming. When we harmonize with truth, the laws upon which God built reality operate, you can't avoid the blessings that come in your life. Those are the natural outcomes of those things. But disobeying God, obeying the systems of religious rules or observances that are not in harmony with God, that are based upon the world's methods, is also transforming. That transforms you too, but in a negative way. Just as one can't avoid the positive transforming effects of harmonizing with God and His methods, you can't avoid the corrupting effects of choosing the methods of the world. So the lesson title, Living by the Word of God, it all depends on how one understands the Word of God. If one understands it as a list of rules to be enforced by the imperial magistrate in heaven under the threat of punishment, such obedience harms rather than heals. Religious obedience based on imperialism harms rather than heals. Think about this historic quote and see if you agree or disagree. It's from Christ's Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. What do you mean? He keeps the rules. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across the human inclinations, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. Pause. Amen. Pause. What kind of law is that? Where is the action occurring? It's not in a book in heaven. It's not a legal application of a price paid. The action that God wants is to transform hearts and minds to a principle. Continuing out the quote, it springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right, and right doing pleases God. Now let me ask you a question. Can you get love and loyalty by threatening to kill people who don't love you and are not loyal? Do you see the corruption in Christianity? Why Satan has worked so hard to get people to believe God's law works like human law, system of rules, and justice requires God to punish the rule breaker. Because when God is the source of threat, hey, I love you, but if you don't love me and obey me, I will kill you. It destroys within you the capacity to love and trust him. All true obedience comes from love and loyalty. So... Consider this one. This is out of Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. What character? When we submit to the will of the Father sullenly because we are required to? By such a one, service is looked upon as a drudgery. If not rendered cheerfully and in the love of God, it is mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace and quietude to the soul. This is penal legal theology. The system of threats and punishments. God is watching you. He's got his angel following you. You're constantly under the heavenly scrutiny. If you don't obey, God will put a demerit in your book. You'll have to pay for that one day in the judgment if you don't get the legal accounting taken care of. This violates the law of liberty. And when you violate liberty, you always incite rebellion, just as this author says. 
So the real issue is the condition of the heart and mind. Do you guys, do we love as individuals truth? Do we have a heart that loves truth, wants to grow in truth? No, we're finite. There's so much truth I still don't know. He's infinite. I'm finite. But I love it. I want to grow in it. I want to advance in truth. Do we have a heart that loves truth? Or do we have a heart that loves our doctrines and we know we own the truth? This is where the truth begins and this is where the truth ends. And if you don't see it the way we see it, then you're a heretic. Because we've defined the 28 truths that you have to know. Do we love truth? Do we love love, liberty? Or do we fear for ourselves and are angry that things don't go our way and believe that when we see wrong, it is right and proper to use the power of coercion to punish the wrongdoer. That's right and proper. Based on what you just described, as well as that first paragraph you're reading, that, that brings truth as being a different thing than an entity. It's an action. So often we are thinking of truth or love or whatever as an entity that can be discovered or whatever, and yet it's truly an action as described from what you're describing. It is, just like love is an action. Right. And so it can't be, it can't be something that you learn without doing. <laughs> you know, the, there's a passage in, in the, the sign um, chapter, Mrs. White's writing, at Friday, that came across and said, if you only pray, you will stop praying. Yeah, well, that's good. It's an action word. So, do we accept the systems of the world and believe it's just and right to use power to punish injustice? Or do we see that every human being is suffering from a condition that needs healing? And our responsibility is to bring a message that frees their heart and mind from fear, from selfishness, and restores righteousness within the heart and mind. (coughs) Satan hates the principles of truth, love, and liberty. He hates them. So, He constantly stirs up in the world, in society, in states, in nations, in relationships. He constantly stirs up injustices. He incites people to do absolute wrong. And then he incites in response to that outrage to the wrong and stirs up the people who want to do right with outrage. This was so wrong so that they want to fix the wrong by using his methods to force something to happen on other people. It is a corruption. You cannot win God's cause using Satan's methods. Remember the Bible? There's a Bible example where it says you can't mix sewage and good and clear water and fresh water and get fresh water. You can't mix the two and get fresh water. You can't mix the principles of God with the, with the methods of the state and get righteousness. You can't do it. This is why the Bible metaphor is your heart must be circumcised. Circumcised is cutting out of your heart the things of the world so that you can have the things of God put in. Satan's trick on people is to be outraged at injustice. It's wrong, and we all agree. It's wrong. A wrong has happened. Somebody's been murdered. It's wrong. How do we remedy that? By using the systems of the world to force some change upon people. Coercion. You can't win. What happens is then you ultimately cause more injustice to somebody. When you begin passing global principles or laws upon the society, somebody will be disenfranchised. Somebody will be taken advantage of. Somebody will be wronged by that, which only causes them to resent, and they'll identify with others, and then that group begins warring against this group. The Satan's goal is a divider. 
So one of the tricks of Satan is to do evil and get people to try to snuff it out by his methods of force and coercion. Understand the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is not given, not given as a template to set up human governments. That is not its purpose. And when people try to use the Bible to set up human governments, they always corrupt the principles of the Bible. Because human governments do not work on God's law. They work on Satan's lie about God's law, that God's law works like human law. And once you accept the lie that God's law works like human law, the wine of Babylon, then you can act beastly in the name of God and coerce and punish people who don't obey the law that you think should be obeyed. This is part of the trap. The Bible was given as a revelation of God, who he is, his methods, the truth, to expose Satan as a liar, to reveal your sickness of heart, and the remedy to heal you in heart and mind and every other person individually. That's why Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. He did not come to set a kingdom up that practices the methods of the world. He came to free hearts and minds from fear, from selfishness, from exploitation of others. He came to heal us. Satan tricks Christians by seeking social reform through government and law rather than through transforming hearts and minds. If you think I'm wrong, study your New Testament. There was all types of corruption and social abuses going on in the Roman Empire. And if you just do an observation, what we call evidence-based an evaluation. Look at the historical facts recorded in Scripture and ask and qualify and quantify. Who used mobs and riots to achieve their goal? They did this against Christ multiple times, and he's speaking truth. They rioted and they mobbed multiple times, trying to um, stone him, if you remember. Multiple times. They did it against Peter. They did it when they stoned Stephen. They did it in the book of Acts against Paul when he's speaking the truth peaceably. They had stirred up riots and mobs. It was so bad that they were about to kill him. The Roman soldiers, government, had to come in and protect him from being killed by these religious people who were... The apostles and Jesus never used these methods. Does that mean they endorse the slavery of Rome? Of course they did not. It means that Jesus came to free hearts and restore righteousness in people. The Bible is not a textbook to set up human governmental systems. And whenever you try to use it and merge it with systems of government, pass laws that will make things right, you're taking fresh water from God's Word and you're mixing it with sewage. And it pollutes it and corrupts it. And so many Christians are being deceived by this right now. Living by the Word of God is the title of our lesson for this week. Doesn't mean living by a written list of rules. That's not what the Word of God means. The Word of God is the living Word. Jesus was the Word made flesh. Living by the Word of God means that you are partaking of the Word, Jesus Christ, into your heart and mind, and you're letting go of the methods and principles of the world, and you're having the Word, Jesus, restored within you, and you live like Christ. Listen to this particular historic quote. God grants men a probation in this world that their principles may become firmly established in the right 
thus precluding the possibility of sin in the future life. And so assuring the happiness and security of all. Why will we have happiness and security in the future life? Because God is the perfect uh, reconnaissance and surveillance agent, and he will watch perfectly any wrong, and he's got an angel with a flaming sword on every corner, and if anybody even has a thought out of line, they're just yanked out and snuffed. Is that why we'll have security in heaven? Because we have perfect police force? No, because only it will only be populated by people who have been restored to perfect righteousness who would rather die than have anything about them harm another. Everyone loves each other perfectly. Let's keep on with the quote. Through the atonement of the Son of God alone... Get ready for this. It's going to blow your mind. Could power be given to man to establish him in righteousness and make him a fit subject for heaven. Amen. Wait a second. The atonement of Jesus would do what? Wait a second. We know this cannot be correct. The atonement of Jesus is a legal payment. God put all the sins on him, and God punished him, and God killed him. And then that blood becomes a payment that you you take to the Father in faith. You say, Father, here's the blood of Jesus. And he goes, okay, you brought the right blood. I will go over to your record, and boom, I put that blood there, and it erases all your sins. And now I'm going to declare you to be righteous, even though you're still wicked in heart. Isn't that what it's for? That is the corruption of Christianity. That's why hearts aren't changing. That's why people are still living in fear. Notice, the atonement of the Son of God alone could give, uh, could power be given to man to establish him in righteousness and make him a fit subject for heaven. The application, that's why Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, the application of what he's achieved is to be in the hearts and minds of people that empowers us to live free from fear and selfishness. Yes. It's also not perfect memory, memory of all the right things. It's a character. That's right. It's not a list of rules. It's a motive of heart. Yeah. So next sentence. The blood of Christ is the eternal antidote for sin. There's another word for eternal antidote. And uh, Remedy. Remedy. No, antidote. Remedy. So what do antidotes do? They cure, they heal, they eradicate infection, they purge disease. And the disease of sin is rooted in lies about God that break trust, resulting in fear and selfishness in the heart. So where must the antidote of the blood of Christ be applied if it's going to be effective? Where? Do you see the corruption of the penal legal system where people are applying the blood in their, in their thought process, they're applying it to record books, they're presenting it to God to get him not to be angry, not to be wrathful? The blood is a metaphor for truth and the life of Christ. The truth destroys lies as we embrace and we ingest the truth. That's another metaphor for the word made flesh, which is another metaphor for the bread, the bread of heaven. And as you take the word, the bread, it's truth that destroys lies and, 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 and wins you to trust. And you open the heart and the blood is another metaphor for the wine, which is another metaphor for the life. We, we receive the life of Christ restored in us, a new heart, new motives, new drives, new desires. We love when we used to hate. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is the real plan of salvation. Continuing on the quote, the death of Christ upon the cross made sure the destruction of him who has the power of death, who is the originator of sin, 
When Satan is destroyed, there will be none to tempt to evil. The atonement will never need to be repeated, and there will be no danger of another rebellion in the universe of God. That which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in paradise of God without the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not exalt the cross of Christ? Angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels in heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden, Eden, the paradise of bliss. All All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. The plan of salvation, making manifest the justice and love of God, provides an eternal safeguard against defection in unfallen worlds, as well as among those who shall be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Our only hope is perfect trust in the blood of Him who can save to the uttermost all who come to God by Him. The death of cross, the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary is our only hope in this world, and it will be our theme in the world to come. The gift of God and His beloved Son was the expression of an incomprehensible love. It was the utmost that God could do to preserve the honor of His law and save the transgressor. I want to pause there. What does that mean? Preserve the honor of His law and save the transgressor. What do you understand? Do you hear that through imperialism? Well, because the law requires somebody be punished, and, and, and Jesus taking our sins and having placed on Him, God can punish the sin and therefore uphold the law, but then He can give you legal pardon if you claim that payment to your account. See? We can uphold the law and also save you. Is that how you hear it? Because that's a complete corruption. That's paganism. We're offering God a blood payment not to kill you. Or do you understand it through design law? Christ actually became human, took the condition upon himself, and as a human being with human abilities, with a human brain and a human heart, he was tempted in every way just like we are. Yet every time temptation came, he only and always exercised his will to apply God's methods. Always. God's methods, God's methods, God's methods, God's law, God's principles, God's ways of doing things over and over again in his humanity. And then when he was faced with extinction, that drive to survive was tempting him with agonizing emotional temptation. He did not use his exer- exercise his power to save self, but he chose love and gave himself freely, eradicating that carnal drive of me first. And he rises, having restored the law of life, the law of love in the humanity assumed, he arises as the new Representative head, the second Adam. Perfected humanity. So Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. And character cannot be created. It must be developed by the exercise of a free and sentient being's choices. And Christ is a human being tempted every way like we are, choosing God's methods, developed a perfect, sinless human character. And this he offers to us as a free gift. And we partake of Christ and we get a new heart and right motives that he wrought out so that you will never, while you're tempted in this life, 
you will never have to suffer the temptations that Christ had. Christ tread the wine press alone. Get your mind around that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that period in his temptation, he was not being comforted by his Father's presence. He was not being strengthened by the indwelling Holy Spirit. He was not being enlightened by God from heaven. He was humanly on his own at that point. You will never face that. You will face temptation, agonizing temptation. But you will always, if you choose, have God's presence there to strengthen you, to enlighten you, to encourage you, and to give you the power to be victorious because you won't have it in your own strength. Do you get your mind around what I'm saying here? How how impactful this is and what Christ has achieved for us? We, we, this also showed there was no design defect in, in Adam. The original man and man and woman, nor That's right. was there a design defect. I like it. No manufacturer's defect. Right. There was no defect in the law. Yeah. In God's law. He he restored honor to God's law, which is what exactly what she said. Continuing on with the quote, why should man not study the theme of redemption? It is the greatest subject that can engage the human mind. If men would contemplate the love of Christ displayed in the cross, their faith would be strengthened to appropriate the merits of his shed blood, and they would be cleansed, saved from sin. Pause. What did you hear? Appropriate the merits. What does this mean? What are merits? What did Christ merit? What did he accomplish or merit? What are his accomplishments? Which is his righteousness, his perfection, his perfect character we just talked about. We appropriate his righteousness or his merits or his character by faith or trust. Open the heart, asking the spirit to come in. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We're reborn, we're renewed, we're recreated. We have the law written on the heart and mind. This is all the same metaphor describing that we are appropriating into our hearts the merits of Christ. The penal legal lie, which we need to reject, is that appropriating the merits of Christ means that we claim his legal payment and we go to the Father and say, Jesus, it paid my price, apply it to my account and declare me to be righteous even though I'm not. Don't change my heart, change my legal standing. That's the corruption. And did you notice in the statement that I read, this author said, their faith, uh, it says, um, their faith be strengthened to appropriate the merits of Christ's uh, merits of his shed blood and they would be cleansed saved from sin. So where is the action happening in this quote? Cleansing the hearts of the people. They would be cleansed, not their record book. They would be. Continue on the quote. Right after she says this, appropriating the merits of Christ so that they will be cleansed, saved from sin. Here's the next words. There are many who will be lost because they depend on a legal religion. (laughs) Or mere repentance for sin. They constantly repent all their bad deeds and claim legal pardon. And they're going to be lost. There's no heart change. They're not interested in heart change. They just want their their, their sins paid for. Without Christ, it is impossible for for him to render perfect obedience to the law, and and heaven can never be gained with an imperfect obedience. Does that that scare you? See, if you're under the human law model, it's all about perfect performance. If you're under design law model, it's about perfect trust. 
that you trust him with you. These are they who do not love their life so much as a shrink from death. I trust you with my life, Lord. I trust you with my life. And so we have these perfect people throughout history. Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him. Doesn't mean he was sinless. Doesn't mean he did everything right. It means he came to a point he trusted God perfectly with his life. He has mature character. Bible perfection is maturity, a character. We love God and we love others more than self. That's Bible perfection. Let's move on to Sunday's lesson. The end of the first paragraph, it says, in the end, there are only two sides from which to pick. Two sides from which to pick. What are those two sides that we need to pick? Democrats and Republicans? <laughs> of course it's God's side and Satan's side, right? Of course it's God's side and Satan's side. I mean, that's obvious. Binary thinking, though. But, but there are only two sides to pick. Oh, yeah. You only, yeah I'm just too binary. Uh, yeah, I've gotten accused of that recently. But what are the difference between these two sides? Are these, I'm going to give you some examples. Are these the two sides from which we need to pick? The Eucharist versus communion. Where the Eucharist is Jesus, when you take the Eucharist, Jesus goes to the Father to present his sacrifice to the Father to pay for your sin that you're confessing during the Eucharist, and that's what's happening. Or the communion, when you take communion and you confess your sins, Jesus goes to the Father and reminds the Father that he already paid for your sins in the past, and now he's applying that payment meritoriously to your account. Is that the two sides we have to pick from? Do you notice they both present the same false god, the same pagan god? This is... Catholicism versus Protestantism, and Protestantism uh, presents the second. And they're arguing amongst them. So I'm going to show you over and over again, Satan presents two falsehoods and have them argue against each other, have them divide society, and have them both actually be on Satan's side. They both are presenting the God who needs a payment made to him in order for him not to kill you. How about this one? Worship on Sunday, the Lord's day, and keep it holy, or God will punish you for breaking his holy day. Worship on the Sabbath, the Lord, uh, and keep it holy, or God will punish you for breaking his holy day. Are these the two sides? Yep. <laughs> it's one of the two of the three sides. Or, in fact, are both of these presenting the same false God? This is the, the Jews in Christ's day had the right day of the week and believed that if you didn't keep the rules on the right day of the week, that you must be punished. And they killed Jesus. These are no different. They're on the same side. How about this one? Do penance to pay for your sin, or God will punish you, versus claim the blood of Jesus to pay for your sin, or God will punish you. How about this one? Now, these are the two sides. Have Mary and the saints intercede for you with God to assuage his wrath and obtain mercy, lest God punish you for your sins. Versus, have Jesus intercede with you before God to assuage his wrath and obtain mercy, lest God punish you for your sins. Are these the two sides? Do you understand that these are the two sides historically that have been fighting? And they're both presenting this, worshiping the same false God. How about this? The two sides. The catechism is the authority we should use to interpret Scripture and know what God would have us do and believe. Versus our denominational creed or list of fundamental beliefs voted in official church conference is the authority we should use to interpret Scripture and know what God would have us believe and do. Are those the two sides? How about these the two sides? Those who don't believe in God versus those who do believe in God. Is that the two sides? No. Depends on what kind of God you believe in. Yeah. 
And aren't there going to be people in heaven who haven't believed in God at all? And those who perform miracles and die in Christ's name will not be there? Aren't there? How about those who believe in the Bible versus those who don't believe in the Bible? Is that the two sides? How about this? How about these two sides? The wheat and the tares. The fruitful vine and the withered vine. The sheep and the goats. The righteous woman and the harlot. The righteous and the wicked. The saved and the lost. The living and the dead. The Christ-like and the Satan-like. Are these the two sides? Yes. Now, did you notice what, what separates the groups in the end? Are the actual two groups separated by denominational affiliation? No. Version of the Bible they use. Participation in the Jewish feast days, which I've been um, approached several times in the last year by people who said that that's essential. Weekly rest from labor on a particular day of the week. Is that, is that, is that the, the division? Uh, how they were baptized. Foods that they eat. <laughs> Or don't. Or don't. So what will actually separate? The list that I gave you, look at the list. Notice every example the Bible gives, they are divided by actual inherent qualities of the two groups. The qualities of the two groups themselves. What's in them? Wheat and tares may look the same on the outside, but they are actually not the same thing. Vines may appear superficially, but one is a living, fruitful vine, the other is a withered, dead vine. They're not the same thing. A pure woman and a harlot have different character. They're not the same thing. Sheep and goats are not the same thing. So in the end, what divides the two groups are the actual condition of the hearts, minds, and characters of the two groups. Those that are like Christ... That under that that embrace and practice God's methods, truth, love, liberty, hearts are renewed, versus those who embrace the systems of the world, imperialism, authority over, coercion, force. This is going to separate the two groups. The plan of salvation is always about. I don't use always a lot, but I'm using it. Plan of salvation is always about what's happening in the hearts and minds of sinners. It's always about healing hearts and minds. It's never a legal process in a court in a galaxy far, far away. It's never. What about this historic quote? Counsels to parents, teachers, and students, 494. Satan is trying to lead men and women away from right principles. The enemy of all good, he desires to see human beings so trained that they will exert their influence on the side of error instead of using their talents to bless their fellow men. And multitudes who profess to belong to God's true church are falling under his deception. They are being turned away from their allegiance to the king of heaven. Why? Because they're turning away from principles. Principles are design laws. So, example of principles versus rules. During the COVID crisis, there's a principle that we all have to love and not hurt and injure others by carrying an infection to another person and getting them sick. That's a principle of love. And that principle leads to some actions of social distancing and recommendations of such. But the principle of seeking to protect, to love others, can lead to rules. We want to help, so we'll set some rules up to to help people with that. And then those rules can eclipse the principle. And now it's about the rule, and we've forgotten the principle. 
And so rule-keeping must be enforced. And then people who understand the principle and say, we won't get together, we won't, we won't get within six feet, we'll stay in our own cars, but we want to go to church, so we'll drive to our church parking lot, we'll stay in our own cars so we don't touch each other and don't share any germs with each other, and we'll have the preacher uh, preach to us either on a local little radio station, we can tune in on our car, or through a loudspeaker. But there's a rule that you're not allowed to attend church right now. You can't go, you have to stay home. So we'll send a police officer in to enforce the rules, and he'll go from car to car to car, handing in tickets back and forth to people, and then potentially being a vector, um, transferring if anybody was infected to the whole group, because we have to enforce the rule. This happened. Yeah, it did. I'm not making this stuff up. Now, do you think this only happens recently in society, or does this same type of thing of rules eclipsing principles happen in church and in religions? And then we end up injuring and harming people in our churches because we're enforcing rules that were only meant to be tools to help us understand and embrace the principles. But the principles get lost because we are now rule keepers. How about rules for Sabbath keeping? Has anybody ever been harmed by Sabbath keeping rules? Yes. Many. You see them in Christ's day, how they repeatedly tried to cause harm to Christ because he didn't keep the Sabbath rules that they thought he should keep. Did Christ ever break the principles of the Sabbath? Never. But that didn't matter. We've got rules. You've got to keep the rules. Second paragraph points out that God works in us through the Holy Spirit. What are the methods of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit's known as the Spirit of truth and love. Truth and love. And how does this work? Truth is brought to our minds in ways that we can comprehend it, and then we are left completely free on what we're going to do with it. If we embrace it and apply it, then we receive power to advance in truth, to overcome whatever it is we need to overcome. But you don't get the power until you choose to embrace the truth. And I know many people who pray for the power when they haven't actually chose the way of truth. The power comes after your choice. And then as you advance in that truth and you have victory, then more truth will be brought. And as you choose that, there's more power and you are transformed as a, as a process moving forward. This is a cooperative effort. God cannot heal a heart and mind without the willing choice and cooperation of the person. And a person cannot heal their own mind by exercising their own abilities independent of God. It is a cooperative effort. As we humbly surrender ourselves and trust to God and choose to follow where He leads. Why, why is it this way? Because God cannot heal hearts and minds against our wills and retain our individuality. He certainly has power to just overwrite your will and, and, and write in a perfect identity, but you wouldn't be you anymore. The only way to retain you is to get your full agreement and cooperation. Monday's lesson. The lesson points us again to Jesus' use of Scripture to respond to Satan's temptations in the wilderness. We've talked about that before, but it's pointing us there again. And the lesson points out that it's not enough to be able to quote Scripture, that the devil, of course, can quote Scripture, so I think that's well said. Uh, just some, because somebody quotes Scripture doesn't mean that, uh, that, that what they're telling you is true. It's a very good point. How is it possible that Scripture can be used to support evil? Or is it? Can Scripture be used to support evil? Yes. <laughs> I think it's used that way because it's misapplied, and the number one misapplication, in my view, is using it through imperial law, mixing it with human law systems and methods. That corrupts the Scripture. And then you teach things it's not designed to teach. 
Slave owners use the Bible to support slavery. The lie that uh, justice is uh, inflicting punishment on a wrongdoer. The Bible is used to support justice, and therefore we must punish wrongdoers because we believe the lie about the law. All religious rituals that obstruct people from genuine heart transformation. All those things we went through just a moment ago. Used by the Bible to obstruct and retain, uh, obstruct healing of people. What do you think about this sentence in the lesson? If Jesus had not known the exact words of Scripture and the context in which they appear, he could easily have been deceived by the devil. Exact words. Does this have the ring of truth, or does some part of you go, uh, something's off about that? Okay, something's off about that. Think it through. Huh. Was the only reason that Jesus was not deceived by the devil because he knew the exact words of Scripture in their context? If he had the words out of order, if he didn't know them exactly but still knew the meaning and the truth behind the words, would he then be, have been deceived? Because he didn't get the words right. Did the devil use the exact words in the right order in his temptation? No. Close. No, he lifted them out of context and only, lift, and only, read, and only read part of it. Out of context, but he had the right words. Is safety coming... Where is safety coming from in this idea that they're putting forth here? Our security comes from, in this idea... Perfect memory. Perfect memory, knowing the exact words, okay? No, our safety in this idea is not coming from knowing God, not knowing the truth, not knowing God's laws and methods, but knowing the exact words. Sounds like an incantation. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Means the right version of the word. Yes, you got to have the right version too, which ultimately is Hebrew or Greek, right? Does it remind you of this out of Tom Thomas Lindsay's uh, history of the Reformation? The great the, the great men who built the Western Church were almost all trained Roman lawyers: Tertullian, Cyprian, Augustine, Gregory the Great, whose writings formed the bridge between the Latin Fathers and the Schoolmen. Were all men whose early training had been that of a Roman lawyer, a training which molded and shaped all their thinking, whether theological or ecclesiastical. They instinctively regarded all questions as a great Roman lawyer would. They had the lawyer's craving for exact definitions. They had a lawyer's idea that the primary duty laid upon them was to enforce obedience to authority. They had the, that whether that authority expressed itself in external institutions or in the precise definitions of the correct ways of thinking about spiritual truths. No branch of Western Christendom has been able to free itself from the spell cast upon it by these Roman lawyers of the early century of the Christian church. So do you, do you hear that in this statement? He had to have the words exact. This is, this is the level four thinking of the law and order. You have to have the precise definitions. You have to have the exact words. You have to have the right law. Go ahead, Wendell. I hate to bring this up, but I have a, a cartoon which I use in my practice, and uh, people come in with a little bump on their wrist. It's called a ganglion cyst, mm -hmm. and it's commonly thought that if you hit it with a Bible, it will go away. <laughs> Peanuts had a cartoon about this, in which Schroeder was playing the piano too much, and he got a bump, and they went to the psychiatry de desk to be solved, and she took a Bible and hit him on the wrist with the thing. The bump was still there. Which part, Charlie Brown said, it must have been the wrong version. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, I'm going to suggest that Jesus did not quote Scripture because he, it was the exact incantation he needed at the right time. 
but that he actually knew God's methods and principles, and he simply quoted the scripture that expressed what he already knew was the truth. Amen. Consider this story from Acts about how we say things, quoting the right words and so forth. Acts chapter 19, 13 through 16. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, who are you? Then the man who was with the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them and gave them all such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. See, they had, they had the words, in the name of Jesus, be cast out. It's not about the right words. There's a lot of magical thinking in Christianity. Name it and have power over it. Get the right word. We're going to go to Tuesday's lesson. Lesson points out that Jesus did not come to change the law, but to fulfill it. The uh, lesson takes issues with those who can't claim that Jesus came to do away with the law. The problem with many that I've seen is that when they read Jesus' statement that he did not come to change the law but to fulfill it, they read it through the imposed law lie. And they read it as Jesus came to keep the same rules and to enforce those rules and to pay the legal penalty that breaking those rules has demanded. So he's fulfilling the legal debt payment. And that's how they'll teach it. It's all a lie based on the wrong concept of the law. I want you to examine in Jesus' Beatitudes sermon, Sermon on the Mount, where he makes those, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fill it. Notice the examples that Jesus gives and ask the question, what's he doing? Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard it said uh, people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. What did Jesus do with the law? Did he say, um, I'm here to pay the payment for the murders that have occurred? He moved it from behaviors and deeds to attitudes of the heart. That's what he did. He put the law where it's supposed to be. It applies to your heart motives, not simple deeds. Okay? He's elevating it. How about this one? Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You've heard it say, do not, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. What did he just do with the law? He again took it away from deeds and put it in the heart. How about this one? This is Matthew 31, 32, 5, 31 to 32. We're still in the same sermon. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. What did Jesus just do? This behavior? Legality? See, they were doing the legal stuff. You got a legal writ. I legally divorced you. What's Jesus saying? If, there, if that, that relationship is a unity of two hearts in love and trust and devotion and commitment, if that has not been broken... That person is still loyal to you, still faithful to you, still committed to you, has not betrayed you, and you simply get a legal writ and put them away, you're the one who is breaking a, a, a relationship. You're committing adultery, and then you're forcing this person whose heart's loyal to you to uh, in, get involved with somebody else. That, that is a false relationship. It's an adulterous relationship. What is he describing? He's describing design law, how things work. How about this one? Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him also the other. What did Jesus do again? He moves it away from imposed rules to design law of the heart. 
love the other person. Don't seek to punish the other person for the wrong deed. He's done wrong. It's an evil. We need to then hold him accountable. Take him to court. Get him in prison. Punish him. Let's, let's do something. No. Jesus is saying, love that person. Act in a way that, re, that, that frees you from resentment and bitterness and ultimately leads the person to redemption. Understand, if you are one of these social justice warriors, and you think that you can take God's word and apply it through the American justice system to get good outcomes, you're being deceived. The Bible taught a different method. Here's what God set up for them. And it was all about redemption. If somebody's been wronged, and we'll say, absolute wrongs, no question. The wronged party, either the victim or if the victim was murdered, the victim's family, prosecutes. There's no prosecuting attorney. You prosecute yourself. You bring the charges. You make the case. The 72 Supreme Court justices of the Sanhedrin, the experts in the law, are all defense attorneys. Every one of them is are there to defend the accused, and you have to overcome their legal defense. If you do, and they're convicted of murder, and the penalty is death, Guess how God set it up? You, the accuser, have to go out and pick up stones and you kill them yourself. You have to look at them while you stone them to death. It was designed for you to go, you're guilty, you've been found guilty, you deserve death. But as you look at that person in the eye, it was designed for you to be convicted and go, but I'm going to show you grace. And I'm going to not inflict the penalty. I'm going to let you go. He who is without sin cast the first stone, which was designed to free you from resentment as you forgive and designed for that person who was caught in the wrong, who was guilty of wrong, to go, I don't deserve the grace. I repent. That's the biblical model. But that's not what we do. We take it as a justice. We believe the human law model. And see, this is how Satan has corrupted the world and got the people of this country and around the world to believe because they've already assumed God's law works like human law. And once we accept that's the way it works, then we can take the Bible and apply it through the human law system. It's a corruption, folks. You have heard it said, this is Matthew 5, 43 to 48, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, no, no, no. We've had somebody murdered. We don't need to pray for the murderer. We need to prosecute him and put him to death. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You want to be sons of your Father in heaven? Think what Jesus just said. Why do you think they hated him? I'm going to tell you, there's a whole bunch of social justice warriors right now that when I read this, they get mad. How dare you, white privileged person, read these words to us? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Now notice notice what the examples Jesus gives. He causes the sun to rise on only the good and keeps the wicked in darkness. No, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He brings the rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. These are design elements of nature that God brings as constants. Goodness shines forth on everybody. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect 
Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is Bible perfection? Loving other people when they don't deserve it. And this is the corruption that's happening in Christianity. And this is how the beastly system is being snuck into Christianity. Because we see wrong. We see evil. It's wrong. It's evil. But what are we going to do? We're going to go out there and we're going to pass laws to correct the wrong. And we're going to use the systems of the state to force reparations and force innocent people who've had no part in the wrong to now be taken from and given to these other people because we have to set it right. So we'll wrong them to set it right. The Bible has nothing in it about taking from innocent parties to repair wrongs. The wrongdoer had the responsibility of of restoring to the one that they took from. Satan is tricking a lot of people. Wednesday's lesson reminds us of the importance of spending quiet time with God. No question about it. The law of worship, by beholding, we are changed. And the law of exertion, if you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. If we are to grow in godliness, we must spend time with God. First sentence of the third paragraph reads, if you love somebody, you enjoy spending time alone with that beloved person. Do you love hearing something like that? Does your brain go, wait a second. My brain went, wait a second. Pause. Hmm. There's an assumption in the text. There's an assumption in that statement that needs exposing. What if you have a child who's rebellious, hostile, hateful, drug addicted, deceitful, steals from you, abuses your little kids? Would you still love that child and long for their redemption? You love them deeply. Would you enjoy spending time with them while they're this way? Well, the, tech, the statement says if you love somebody, you enjoy spending time with them. How about you have a parent who is critical, negative, always fault finds with you, finds something you're always shortcoming on. Might you still love your parent and long for a good relationship, but not enjoy spending time with them because of how they treat you? See, there's an assumption in the statement that if you love somebody, that they treat you well. That's not necessarily true. We can love people deeply and not enjoy their company at all. Amen. And so I have to carry this, this point forward. So what happens then if people are taught that God is intolerant of sin? In fact, he gets angry. He's wrathful when he sees it. His holiness is so great that he'll have to lash out and punish those who are sinful. And then we need a mediator to hide us from his wrath and propitiate him so he won't hurt us. If this is how God is presented, uh, even though they say they love him, well, they want to spend time with him. That's that critical, dictatorial father figure. I love him. I, I hope I have a good relation one day. But I don't want to spend time with him. And that's the corruption. Yes, we need to spend time with God, but we spend time with Him. And we love spending time with Him when we see what Jesus revealed to us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Restoration to the truth about God and who He is, then our love for Him draws us into His presence and we go boldly before the throne of grace. And we love spending time with Him, but we have to come back to the knowledge of God. Life eternal, the knowledge of God. Wendell. Love is a triad, not a binary. And so, yes, you enjoy spending personal time with someone, but you do that with the anticipation of preparing to spend time with others together. So, love, it's that song, old uh, Michael W. Smith song, love isn't love unless you give it away. <laughs> love isn't love unless you give it away. If you're only receiving it and wallowing in it and drinking it in and adoring yourself because you're being loved, you know what I mean, right? That's not love. It's not love at all. You, the other person may love you, but you're not living in love. 
And so it's right. It's when we experience it and then let it flow through us and open the heart and give it away. And the more you give, the more you... This is the kingdom of God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an amazing creator God who is the source of all truth, all love, all righteousness, all liberty and freedom. We we pray now at this time in human history that your Holy Spirit, the latter rain will fall, the spirit of truth and spirit of love, and hearts and minds will have discernment to be able to see the wickedness and the deceit going on out there. Because you've told us in your word that if it were possible, even the very elect will be deceived. And we see how truly deceptive some of these things are, how appealing they seem to be, but how they embrace the methods that are contrary to your kingdom. Help us be resistant, discerning, and able to to tell the truth effectively. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.